A few weeks ago on Good Friday, we read together from Mark's account of the first Good Friday. And Mark told us this. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So Jesus spent his last evening before the cross celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And he didn't just celebrate the Passover. During the meal with his disciples, Jesus took that ancient festival, and it was already very ancient at that time, and he very deliberately gave it a new significance. He made it all about himself. Or it's more accurate to say, he showed the true significance of that ancient festival because it had always been an anticipation of Jesus. Even as the Passover commemorated God's work of salvation in Egypt, it was also pointing forward to the greater work of salvation Jesus would do on the cross. And so we could say on that last evening with his disciples, Jesus illuminated the full significance of the Passover. And having looked this morning at the Lord's Supper, this evening we're going to go back and look at the origin of Passover and how it did foreshadow Jesus' work. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 11. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 68. And in the larger print Bibles, page 102. In a moment, we're going to read all the way from chapter 11, verse 1, through to chapter 12, verse 30. But since we're jumping into the middle of this book, let me just remind you what has gone on before this. In the book of Genesis, God promised Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation. At the end of Genesis, there were about 70 of those descendants of Abraham, referred to as the Israelites. And they moved down to Egypt to escape famine in the land of Canaan. But over time, two things happened. That group of 70 multiplied massively as the years went by. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, became very nervous about them. So nervous, the beginning of Exodus tells us that he began to oppress them. They became a nation of slaves in Egypt. But, the writer of Exodus tells us, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. God sent Moses and his brother Aaron to deliver the Israelites. But as we know, if, you're, if we're at all familiar with this story, that deliverance was not a simple thing. Pharaoh didn't just let the Israelites walk. As far as he was concerned, they were his property and they were very useful to him. And so God sent a series of what we call plagues. But really, they were signs of God's sovereignty. They were powerful demonstrations of God's strength in the situation. And each one of those plagues, or those signs of sovereignty, each one of them was also a gracious invitation to Pharaoh. 
to wake up to God's sovereignty, to acknowledge God's rule and let the Israelites go. But as we, if we were to read those early chapters, we would see that Pharaoh resisted those signs just as God had said he would. And we're going to pick up now after nine signs have come and gone in Egypt. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Israelites favorably disposed towards the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops, the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood... I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. 
This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day until the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, Observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down in worship. The Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. This is God's word. And it shows us two realities. Realities that are just as relevant today as they were in ancient Egypt. First of all, judgment is coming with salvation for some. And it's not a surprise. And then second, God has provided one way of escape from judgment. First of all, in chapter 11... Judgment is coming with salvation for some, and it's not a surprise. The first verse of chapter 11 reminds us what's about to happen is the very final act in a long process. We've already noticed there were nine plagues before this. And on seven previous occasions during those plagues, Moses and Aaron stood before Pharaoh and they said to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. 
let my people go so that they may worship me. And each time, Pharaoh refused. Yes, he did make some attempts to bargain. He tried to offer them something less than a complete exodus of the Israelites. But Pharaoh would not do what the Lord through Moses was commanding him to do. And so the Lord says to Moses in chapter 11, verse 1, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Pharaoh has resisted all the previous signs of God's power. Each one of them was an opportunity to listen to God and obey. Now, before all this even began, Pharaoh made it clear to Moses, or God made it clear to Moses, that Pharaoh would not give in easily. He made it clear the exodus would not happen until this final plague had taken place. So God is in sovereign control of this. Exodus wants us to see that. God is not at Pharaoh's mercy in all this. And at the same time, Exodus wants us to see Pharaoh is justly being punished for his rebellion against God. God's power is never in doubt in this situation, but that doesn't take away human responsibility in the situation. And that comes out in a positive way in verses 2 and 3. God says the Israelites are to ask their Egyptian neighbors for articles of silver and gold. And yet... It's God himself who supplies those things by making the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the Israelites. And just as the judgment on Pharaoh was something God had foretold, so is this favor on God's people. Hundreds of years before this, God said this to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. God is about to fulfill that promise. And the point is, neither God's judgment nor God's salvation are surprises. God had planned to bring these things about. And at the same time, human beings are responsible for how they respond to God. Will they defy Him or will they obey Him? And it's the same today. In the New Testament, God promises final judgment is coming. The book of Revelation picks up on these plagues from Exodus to show us History is full of God's warnings to humanity. God has promised final judgment, and again and again He has demonstrated His power to bring it about. When it comes, no one will be able to excuse themselves by saying, I had no idea. We've all seen nature in uproar. We know about earthquakes and storms, and the devastation they can bring. We can't say God's power has been hidden. Neither can we say that his promises of salvation have been hidden. 
We'll come later to what the New Testament says about those. But here in Exodus 11, verses 4 to 6, emphasize that God's judgment will fall on the Egyptians. There will be no escape. Previously, God had used Moses or Aaron to bring about the plagues, but this time, they will have no involvement. God says in verse 4, I will go throughout Egypt. God is going to bring about this final judgment directly. And verse 7 makes it clear the Israelites will not be affected. When it says a dog, not a dog would bark at any of the Israelites, that means no harm at all is going to come to them. Not even a dog is going to bother them. God has promised them salvation. But, we're about to see, it will not come automatically. They must respond to the promise God has given. That becomes clear in chapter 12. God has provided one way of escape from judgment. The first 11 verses of chapter 12 are a series of elaborate instructions about preparing and eating a meal, even how to dress for the meal, and what speed to eat the meal. They're to eat it in haste, God says along with those instructions about painting their doors with blood. And as we read this, we might wonder, is all this necessary? Didn't we just read in chapter 11, verse 7, the Israelites are going to be safe? Not even a dog will bark at them? What do we need all this for? Well, we were told they were going to be safe, but it turns out they will be safe only if they respond appropriately to God's word. It turns out the Israelites are equally at risk in this final plague. Their Israelite passports do not make them exempt from judgment. Only blood can save them. God himself is going to pass through Egypt, and when he sees a house with blood on the doorframes, he will leave it alone. But when he sees a house with no blood on the doorframes, his judgment will fall on that house. God does not say, I will visit every Egyptian house and bypass every Israelite house. The distinction is between those who are protected by blood and those who are not. Now, what actually happens is the Israelites put blood on their doorposts and the Egyptians don't. But it's the blood that makes the difference. It's clear that if an Israelite household didn't have blood on the doorpost, God's judgment would fall on that house. So yes, long ago, God promised Abraham he would be the father of a special people. God has chosen Abraham and his descendants, but they're still sinners, just like everybody else. They still deserve God's judgment just like everybody else. God can't waive the punishment for Abraham and his descendants. He would no longer be God if he did that. Because he's a God who can't help but take evil and sin seriously. We command human leaders when they do that 
Why would we expect any less of God? So the question is, since God can't ignore evil and sin, how are God's chosen people going to be saved? How is their sin problem going to be dealt with? Do they get to choose how it's dealt with? No, God is in charge of that. And this passage shows how he has chosen to save his people. There have been hints of it before in Scripture, in the book of Genesis, but now we know God will save his people by providing a substitute, one who will die instead of the people. If they refuse to place their hope in that substitute, then they will have to take the judgment themselves. And God specifies the substitute is to be a lamb. It's to be killed, and the people in the house are to paint the door frames of their house. Look at chapter 12, verse 12. God says, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you in the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Blood signifies violent death, death that is not due to natural causes. The blood on the doorposts confirms two things that are required if God is going to pass by a house. First of all, it confirms that a substitute has died in place of the firstborn of that house. And second, it confirms that those in the house have faith in God's promise, that he will accept the death of a substitute instead of their death. So as death comes all around them, the people in the house are banking everything on God's promise, that the blood will save them. So the blood is a sign to God that a substitute has died and that those in the house are trusting in that substitute. But notice in verse 13, God also says, the blood will be a sign for you. The blood is to give the Israelites confidence they're protected. They don't have to wait and see if their firstborn will still be alive in the morning. They can have assurance they're protected. Death will not come to them because the lamb has already died instead. Judgment has already fallen. There's no more judgment to be faced. The substitute has taken all of it. And then amazingly, in the midst of this life and death situation, God is already looking forward to what this event is going to mean for future generations. Look at verse 14. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it, from the first day until the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly. And another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all in these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Now, there's nothing particularly special about bread made without yeast. 
also known as unleavened bread. The significance is simply that it's quick to prepare, apparently. It only takes minutes. And that suited the situation of these people who are about to leave Egypt in haste with their cloaks tucked into their belts. But why do future generations need to make such a big deal of this bread? Well, they won't need to continue putting lamb's blood on the door frames. Notice that doesn't need to be repeated in future generations. The substitute has done his work. But getting rid of yeast shows their ongoing commitment to the God who had saved them. That's why refusing to get rid of yeast is taken so seriously. It was defiance of the saving God. It's not that the yeast was toxic in some way. No, it was the disobedience that was toxic. That's what the cutting off was about. And it's significant how the New Testament picks this up. It tells us we don't need another substitute either. Our substitute Jesus has paid for sin once for all. But we show our ongoing commitment to our Savior, not by removing yeast from our houses, but by removing sin from our lives. This is how Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, the greatest way we can commemorate God's salvation is by living in the light of his salvation, spending the rest of our lives turning away from sin, from malice and wickedness. Back in Exodus 12, as we read on, what we find is Moses passing on God's commands to the people then, having received them from God himself. And we're going to pick up towards the end of that in verse 24. Moses says to the people, Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. So it turns out there really was just one way of escape from judgment. It was the way God provided. Those who took God's way of escape did escape. The rest did not. And that's how it is today. The way of salvation we've just seen, it wasn't just a strange one-off thing. 
The rest of the Bible shows us this was a preview of what Jesus would do much later in history to save humanity from God's judgment. At Easter, we remember Jesus' violent death on the cross. And how does the New Testament describe him? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The only way of eternal salvation is through the perfect substitute God provided. The one who took God's eternal judgment in our place. When we have faith in God's promise that he accepts Jesus' death instead of ours, when we take shelter beneath Jesus' blood, we can live the rest of our lives with confidence, without fear. One of our songs says, I will not fear your judgment. For me, no wrath I dread, for it was spent on Jesus poured out upon his head. And the way we're to respond to this great salvation is to commemorate it. Yes, we do that by celebrating the Lord's Supper regularly as we did this morning. That reminder of the greater Passover he brought about. But even more so, we commemorate this salvation by turning away from the sin that put Jesus on the cross. Committing personally to get rid of it. Just like the Israelites were to get rid of the yeast in their houses. For the rest of their lives, they were to do that. But as we make that commitment to get rid of sin, we are not doing it to earn salvation. It's a response to the salvation we already have. Freely given to us by God himself. Through the Savior he provided. And so those of us who have put our hope in Christ, we can sing our last song with thankfulness and with confidence. The song says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong a perfect plea. Let's join together in praising God for what he has done.